Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Powatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Powatic with my co-host, Aaron Cameron. The Real Estate Forums was kind enough to introduce us to Mike Chestahovsky, who's Executive Vice President of CBRE. And Mike specializes in land. He's been buying and selling land for 36 years. And he's joined us today to talk about the highs and lows of his career and what we can expect out of the land market over the near term and then you know even beyond. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you very much for having me. So, Mike, we always start off these interviews with you know with the background, and it sounds like you've got you know quite the career thirty six years in. But we'd love to hear how you started, the changes you've seen over that time, and you know how you got to where you are today. I took economics in university, and as we were finishing, I accepted a job at London Life as an actuary. And then my uncle, who had a small mid sized firm, it was a big firm considering back then, came to me and said, "I really want." your help, and I need someone I can trust in the office. Was talked into it by family, joined it, never looked back. Uh, I've been at CB now 27 years, just past our 27th anniversary, and by far best company, best platform, and I would not want to be anywhere else. I started out as a Collier's guy, so I take a bit of an affront to that, but I do know that CBRE is a good company, so I won't try and uh, correct you. But yeah, between those two companies, it was always friendly competition, but a lot of respect between the two. So I'm just joking around, of course. So can we, to set the stage, can we define, you know, your transaction areas, the markets you're focusing on and the type of land sales that you're involved in? So myself and my partner, Lauren White, run what we call the Land Services Group. We split our time pre-COVID between the downtown office and the north office. Our team is based out of the north office. 95% of our business is representing landowners. That landowner can be a private individual, could be a developer, institutional money, public company, selling development land to developers, and generally we represent the owner of that land. Generally, we're in the GTA, Greater Golden Horseshoe at times, And we do all land types. We do retail, industrial, office. We do every form of residential. We will not take listings that don't have development potential, in our opinion. We do have a planner on staff that helps us with that. But we're selling development land to developers. So, Mike, I mean, let's just date stamp it. It's July 21st, I believe. You know, we're all recording from our homes, still kind of in quarantine in the middle of the COVID pandemic. Let's start here so we can get away from it. You know, maybe just go backwards in your illustrious career about different challenges you've experienced, maybe how they are similar to COVID, how they've been different, and just kind of maybe how your particular market and land has adapted over sort of, you know, trying times. When I started, we were doing vendor take back mortgages between 18 and 22%. So uh, is that high? That's that's, that's, that's high, right? You know, and... People a little older than me will tell you that their first mortgages were at 18 or 19% on their homes, and they generally had more than one. So uh, certainly going starting in a recession, I think, did me a lot of good. I had time to learn. I had time to really get a good grasp of the market, and to do a deal at that time was not easy. So going through those type of times, the recession, high interest rates, areas where things just stopped really gave me a good experience with COVID. When COVID started happening and we were all stuck in our homes, 
uh, I had a meeting with my team on Zoom and I said, work, things might not happen as quickly. Things not, might not happen as easily, but those that are working through this will come out the other end that far ahead. I think a lot of people that didn't have that experience maybe looked at this as a vacation, but certainly it's no vacation. You have to work three times as hard for half the money and know that we will come out of this and there will be deals happening and there'll be a lot of deals happening at the other end and it'll continue on. Business will continue on. The one thing when you went through a couple of the nastier recessions, early 90s, where things just stopped, you have to realize that you have to have enough funds put aside that you're not panicking when things dry up. And as a salesperson, always have a year. I think a year is comfortable that things, when they slow down, especially for land, they stop. People aren't selling because they all think things are going to get better. People aren't buying because they believe things are going to get worse. And you get these lag periods of six months to a year where just nothing happens. But you know, through those periods, you do your work, you do your studies, you do your research, and you will come up the other end. You mentioned the early 90s. And I'm just curious, you know, we've heard, we've had a number of guests that are kind of in the, of your same time frames of starting their careers. And they all talk about how being a real estate person at the time, you know, people would almost look at you funny, right? It was a dirty word quite often back then. And then I guess selling land, I mean, that must have been even more challenging, at least if it was sort of cash flowing assets, you could point to ROIs or ROEs and have something to compare it against. What was it like back then, uh, that time of your career, trying to sell land in a real estate market that was almost non-existent? The people that were selling really needed to sell. They were either a situation where the lender is pushing them or the lender has taken control of the property and is selling the property for them. So we're dealing with highly motivated vendors with not a lot of purchasers. Who is buying were those large private families that are still around today that certainly were waiting for opportunities and came out and were buying anything of good quality they could. So I can tell you, I probably spent a lot of time in the same five or six offices of those purchases. And they're still around today. And we're dealing with now their third generation developers. And they're the size of institutional clients. And they're still buying today. Yeah. And part of their growth was, I'm assuming, a direct result of the amount of cheap land they were able to acquire in those trying times. I'm very envious of them buying land then. And now and then you say, when did you buy that? And it was like, uh, my grandfather bought it in the 60s. I don't ask what they pay because I don't want to know. But <laughs> yes, cer certainly they have large holdings of land. It's probably For inflation adjusted to zero, probably, right? <sighs> yeah. My dad bought a cottage. And a lot of those people back then went and bought farms in Vaughn instead. So certainly, I think it was equivalent pricing, but it's something that is paying off for them today. But when you think of it, an investment that pays off two generations later is to the benefit of the grandkids. So, For long-term listeners of the podcast, they may remember we would ask the number one piece of advice you would give a younger, self, your younger version of yourself entering the industry. And almost universally, the answer was, I would tell my younger self to buy as much real estate as possible as early as possible. And it sounds like you're, you're of the same mindset. But did you get involved in any deals personally during the 90s or beyond? Very few. Very few. We had some family-owned real estate that we held that we bought more because my, one or two of my relatives, including my dad, was in love with land. So we bought things. But certainly we sold way too early. 
the one advice I'd give you, don't ever sell any real estate, right? Your first house, unless you absolutely have to, that condo, your second house, keep it and rent it out. Things will add up very quickly. So had I been thinking about it a little bit more, I would have bought a lot more land, you know? And I don't know if I'd be sitting here today. Maybe I would. You know? You'd be on here as the CEO of the Mike Fund. It would not be... Uh, 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 worse, I could tell you some stories about what my dad could have bought back in the 50s and what he could have paid nothing for land. People just didn't buy it back then the same way. Yeah, my dad's got a story about having a property under contract right in Young and Bluer that ended up being part of the Mizrahi build. But he had under contract in the 80s. He flipped the paper and made, you know, what is by no stretch of the imagination, a tidy sum for a few weeks work. But that one really sticks that he, he should have closed on that one and uh, <laughs> held on to it. Because, of course, when he heard about the final sale price to Mizrahi, it uh, made his jaw drop, even though at the time he was quite proud of the transaction. Listen, we can't go broke making money. So, True. you know, <laughs> True. If, if you made money, it's okay. Yeah, but you can drive yourself crazy playing the what-if game looking backwards, though. Exactly. Yeah. I see, he always justifies it with the expression, better a short profit than a long face, which yes. is it's okay to book a standing double rather than always going for the home run. Exactly. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Let's segue. I know we're still kind of talking about COVID. Let's just talk about what happened in sort of February, March, April. What kind of velocity you saw in your transactions and then maybe kind of bring us up to today and what you're kind of seeing over the next couple quarters in the end of 2020? Uh, certainly when COVID hit, it was pens down. We had a tremendous first quarter. We had a lot of deals that spilled over, and we closed them beginning of the year, a couple large high-density sites. So it made our first quarter numbers look extremely, extremely good. Once COVID hit, we pulled some of our large listings back off the market from marketing, and things that we were about to launch, we waited. We just didn't feel that it was the time to launch and to continue marketing because the developers were more worried about their ongoing operations, their sites, if they were building, their employees. And that was really where their time was being spent. So we didn't want to put properties out if we weren't going to garner the interest. Since then, Things progressively got better. I think everyone realized that, you know, the world was not coming to an end. Things were going to come around. By March, uh, April, by May, they were launching new home sites again and doing quite well. There was a number of sites that were launched May, June that did quite well, that showed some strength in the market. People were selling condos and single family homes remotely and doing quite well. One developer took out 71 units and sold them all in a short period of time, all remotely. So it showed that there was depth in the market. Interest rates are so cheap that even the more expensive homes are still affordable. And certainly in the last four to six weeks, we've noticed a significant difference. Lauren and I, we chat every day, but still you want to hear what they're feeling. And we're both feeling that there's been a significant change in interest. Everybody is pens up. And saying, what do you have out? What do you have coming? Do you have any off-market deals I can buy? Is there any COVID discount attributable to these deals? Is there any change? Can I take advantage of the situation? So certainly a lot of our large institutional and private clients are out looking for properties right now. 
So with all these signs of life, is this about where you expected us to be? Like back in March, when you were talking with your vendors about pulling listings, was the conversation, we're pulling this just for a couple of weeks, or was it we're pulling this for five years and we're never going to transact again? I, obviously, I'm, I'm indulging in absurdity for both extremes, but what was the conversations then in terms of how long you thought these sales would be sidelined versus what sounds like healthy signs of rebound evident now? We had no idea. And anybody that tells you they did is smoking in mirrors. We've never experienced a financial situation where it was health-related in my lifetime. Our, my parents did with the war, Second World War, but I've never experienced a situation where it was something out of the hands of the banks, of the developers, of the government. It was something that was health-related, and we never thought this type of situation was going to happen. We never felt it was going to have this dramatic of an effect. My doctor, who I'm friends with, told me a year ago, it was not whether or not a pandemic was going to happen. It was a matter of when. And I asked him why. And he says, Mike, look at the travel. He says, you know, 30 years ago, people didn't travel from some of these smaller areas overseas, these regions. And if there was an issue with a pandemic, it was contained. Today, those people are getting on a plane and going all over the world and spreading things. So certainly that has changed. But I think this has told us that this can happen. It will and may. God help, no, but it will happen again. It's a question of when. I think we'll be a lot better prepared for it. And hopefully things, you know, our government's going to learn, you know, what to do and what not to do the next time. Yeah, no, certainly we all now are very familiar with what quarantining means. I mean, I remember when I first heard the, the word social distancing, I kind of had to think a second, like, what are you talking about? And, you know, hopefully it never does happen, but you're probably right. When it does, they'll just turn a switch on and we'll all know how to behave. Um, I, I'm sitting in my basement office. When we renovated this house, my wife says, so we'll put you upstairs in your office? I go, no, 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 I'll never use it. Had I known. <laughs> I'd be sitting on the second floor overlooking the front of the house, not sitting in the basement. Yeah. Uh, I think we all learned lessons from it. Yeah. Agreed. Nope. Totally agreed. You kind of touched on it earlier about just your developers and it's a lot of the same people you've been working with for a long time, just new generations. Maybe just profile your clientele and something you'd said before we hit record that you're seeing your clientele sort of change slightly, that there's new entrants. Maybe just kind of talk about what they were like before what they are today and kind of how you see your client, your developer clients evolve? You know, certainly when I started, there were primarily large families, private families. By today's standard, they'd probably be mid-sized, but today they're huge. So you had those private families that even at that time, when I started in the 80s, they were probably second generation already. Companies that started in the 50s and 60s, 70s. So certainly those People are still around. What's changed is the institutional money, institutional money that is partnering with them, the pension funds that own development companies, the equity funds that are coming in and putting equity in with development deals, and the REITs and the public development companies. Certainly, they didn't exist anywhere close to this extent back when I started. 90% 90% chance you were selling to a private individual that was the principal in the company if you had a piece of land. Today, it's probably closer to 50-50 that's going to be a REIT, institutional client, equity money, as much as it's going to be 
a private individual. And the bigger the deal, the more likely that that institutional money will somehow be involved. Because the size of the deals today are so large. You know, when I started a big deal, it was $5 million, $10 million. Today, no one blinks at $100 million. So, but $100 million is a lot of money for anybody. So certainly the deal size has given these institutional investors an opportunity to partner or, and to enter the game. You talked about a pens down, and I imagine that likely all happened in a very tight window. You know, 10 days, probably everybody put their pens down, not in a synchronized fashion, but pretty close to it. But I imagine the, the pens up transition I can't imagine all those buyer groups you talked about all wanting to jump back in at the same time. So who were the first ones to you know, poke their heads out of the bomb shelter to see what there was to buy? And at what stages did they re-enter the marketplace with their pens back up? I had calls from both. You know, I think who called me first was some of the, the private companies. And I say private, but they're the size of institutions, some of them. But the institutions were similar timing, some of them. And the equity players picked up the phone and started calling, saying, what do you have coming? Can we buy something off market? You know, is there a better deal to be had today if I don't wait? Uh, is there any there, groups not sitting in the market right now? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I'd say there's still a good, you know, 25, 30% that are sitting waiting that are maybe were heavily weighted in retail or just waiting to see what happens that have issues elsewhere and just want to wait and see what happens. So have you brought back all the transactions that you had pulled when it was pens down? Has everything come back to the market or do you still have some? We still have uh, a couple of deals. Yeah. yeah. We have a couple that we're waiting on probably will launch shortly or just after Labor Day. I think it's just also timing of some of our vendor clients that maybe are busy with other forms of their business. So to get them back focused on what they want to do with the possible disposition. And I can tell you those clients are certainly, there is no COVID discount. There's no COVID change to terms or pricing at all. So they know that. And they're making it very clear until their listing team. And, you know, on those ones, we're partners with uh, Casey and Peter downtown. Until we feel confident that we're going to achieve the values that they want, we will not put it back to market. So... Before we go forward, because I want to get a sense of what your instincts are about, you know, how your your land market, how the land market's going to transpire over the next couple of quarters. But I want to look back first. I don't think I prompted you with this, but are there is there one transaction or a couple of transactions that you participated in that were either really really difficult because maybe that's more interesting than the ones that were just you know trophy assets. But maybe just talk about some specific transactions that kind of just come to mind when I say, well, what's some of the most interesting things you've ever worked on in your career, Mike? Dunlop Observatory for University of Toronto. So, 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 you know, Dunlop Observatory was land in the middle of Richmond Hill, built all around it. It had a observatory and an admin building and and some smaller outbuildings on the site. It definitely was a redevelopment site in our view. And U of T decided to sell it because with unnatural light around it, the observatory didn't work as well. And the technology just wasn't there. And just to give you an idea, that observatory discovered black holes. So it was built at a time where there was nothing around it. So there was no unnatural light. So we took it to market for University of Toronto. And we had a lot of pushback from the area residents that thought it was a park. They thought, you know, it had actually had an arena, Elvis Stoko Arena on it. 
And when we took it out, we had a lot of pushback. We had a professor that took to living in a tent, try to protect it. A professor from U of T. I got a call from the police once that there was a body on site. So I went out and he was sleeping with his feet sticking out of the end of the tent that they thought it was a body that somebody had left there. So you can imagine going through that. We had some interesting times. We had, I don't really, I, I can tell you we had one developer that was adamant that he was going to buy it even during the process. And uh, he was right at the end of the day. It was one of the more interesting to deal with the politics of it, dealing with academics at UFT, dealing with area residents that felt it was a park, that municipalities that felt it was theirs, even though they didn't own it. So I think today, that complexities of a deal today is normal when you're dealing with all those moving parts. Back then, it was a learning experience, but it ended up being a very enjoyable deal. I did the deal on a handshake, and I shook the guy's hand. Frazier Nelson from Metro's Properties at a Tim Hortons and did a $70 million deal. And I was told that's what was going to happen by Fred DeGaspers. So, you know, he uh, certainly that was one of the more interesting deals that I ever done. I can add a personal touch because I trained at that Elvis Stoko Arena for years and have memories of that park. And for context, for those that maybe not in the city of Toronto, you know, Richmond Hill is sort of a, immediately adjacent to sort of the core, I guess, sort of North Toronto. And that particular site is surrounded by some older communities, right? Like houses yes. that were built in the 70s oh, yeah. and 80s, right? Like yes. that, it is a mature neighborhood with this giant plot of land kind of right in the middle. Any sense of what he ended up getting approved on for zoning to build there? I think they got approved just over half for single family and townhouses. So out of 200 acres, I think they're just around 100, just over 100 acres usable. And then a lot of green space he's had to retain, I'm assuming. Yes. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Everybody wins, I feel like, in that scenario. Yeah. So I got to ask uh, one more deal-related question, and it's for the portion of our audience that is deal junkies, which I think is, is quite a bit, and I probably include myself in that category as well. What's the largest transaction you've worked on in your career? Uh, Celestica. And uh, it was over $200 million. And certainly that was 60 acres in the city on a transit line that was being built. But I think the most memorable big deal was the Canadian Tire site at Leslie and Shepherd. So that was approved when we took it out for 4,000 units. And it was a huge site. The fact that it was 20 towers, 4,000 units. When we did the deal, it was $150 million. And at that time, it was the largest single land transaction in Canadian history. So it kept me up. And that one, we did it with a group from China, from Hong Kong. And all the negotiations were done after 11 o'clock at night. And I can tell you, my wife was not happy with me. So we had a baby at home. <laughs> and uh, she was not happy with <laughs> all worth it in the end though and i can tell i'm a deal junkie because i got my heart racing just hearing about it and uh, for anybody that wants to hear more about the celestica transaction mike i'm sure you know this person we had Lori Payne on just recently and we spent a good five if not ten minutes talking about that transaction because it is an interesting one so i'll put a link in the the show notes to that episode if you want to hear more about that for context Lori Payne was the on the development side the, the land entitlement side so mike would have been brokering it and Lori would have been when doing the pro formas on what they could eventually put in there. And it's quite the interesting 
you know, mega project truly. So maybe that's a good segue if we're talking about, you know, Lori Payne and land entitlement for your perspective on trying to build in Toronto. You know, if you talk to developers in most parts of the country, they will talk about timelines being an issue, but I know that it's particularly acute, especially in the more built up areas of Toronto. So how much of a hindrance to what you do, what your clients do, do you feel that the slow process in Toronto and Ontario has on developers and developers' interest in particular sites? Well, it's very tough to perform a length of time to development in. No matter where you are or what you think you're going to get, it always takes longer. And that is going in the wrong direction, in my opinion. It's taking longer to get stuff developed and approved and longer to build it. And that's adding a lot of costs to the end unit. So affordability is very important. You know, for young people, for older people, it doesn't matter. And I think we need to somehow streamline this process. And I'm not a planner. I'm not an engineer. But I've lived through enough of it to know that there has to be a better way to do it. Is that putting, sorry, Mike, is that putting downward pressure on land prices? I think the lack of supply is going to keep land prices up, you know, that it's changing, right? And we're not seeing swaths of land opened up in the suburbs. It still takes a long time to change a line in an official plan. And downtown today, there's no vacant sites anymore that we're developing. We're ripping down buildings. And I think for the next 20 years, and I tell some of the young people on my team, you're not going to sell vacant land in the city of Toronto. There's going to be something on it, an old industrial building, an old office building, or even a small apartment building. You're ripping it down to do a higher and better use. It takes time, a lot more complexities, a lot more politics. And you know, we need to somehow take the politics out of planning and do it for the greater good. What makes sense for the overall community and for the market? That's how these decisions have to be made. Do you ever worry that, you know, because of the timeframes and the complexities, and as you, you kind of described, or you, you indicated that your University of Toronto observatory sale was really challenging and complex, but now they're all like that. Does that sometimes potentially take some capital out of the land market? People just say, you know what, it's just too much work, too many variables, there's too much risk. I'm just, I'm going to stick to, you know, our cash flowing assets. Adam says he's a deal junkie. Three quarters of my developer clients are deal junkies. It's not going to stop. They love doing it, and some projects they make good money, some they make a little bit less, but they're going to keep going. I think a lot of it is, you know, there are a lot of our developer clients that are looking and saying, I want to be part of the solution to provide affordable housing. How do I do that? And going to government and asking. We're going through the Create Toronto Housing Now initiative, where we're you know taking parking lots of subways and doing deals with developers on long-term land leases that incentivize them to build affordable housing for rent. So I think more and more our government is getting a little bit more creative with the land that they hold and the developers are getting more creative. So hopefully we can start streamlining things. Well, so a related question then, because you do work on, you know, land being the common theme, but uh, you work on all asset types, as you said. And so of course you'd be seeing a lot of pro formas in, in all the different categories. Who's getting the biggest returns right now? You know, if you've got land zoned for particular use, we're not talking about rezoning. Who's getting the biggest returns on their pro formas? You know, over the last 10 years, it changes. 
on a continuous basis. I think a lot of the developers that bought high density land and upzoned it and got more density than the anticipated that thought they were performing it 10 years ago at five, 600 bucks. And when it did, you know, got delayed through the planning process. And when they came to market, it was a thousand pretty good lift for your money. I think that a lot of the big box industrial developers that are building big logistics centers are doing pretty good. I think those numbers are starting to get a little bit thin, but there's still strong demand. And single family home developers, I think, you know, depending on where you were and the density you achieved, you did okay. But I think the biggest, some of the biggest lifts I've seen were on the high density sites where they bought them thinking they're going to do 250,000 at 600 bucks and they did 400,000 at 1,000. And how much has COVID-19 rattled everybody's cages in terms of readjusting the order? If you, if you had a pile of cash today to put into something, you know, forgetting the last couple of years, where would you be putting it? Funny, I asked this question in an interview I did the other day. <laughs> what was the answer? You could just, you could I, just steal that I, answer. <laughs> I had two answers, high-density land and, okay, industri- so and industrial land. I think today I would put it into industrial. I'd buy some large-track industrial land along 400-series highways. And why is that? Maybe just expand on that a little bit, Mike. I think the logistics sector is changing. And I think we think more and more people are shopping online. So the logistics use is going to increase. But I don't think we have any idea how much. So I think the one thing COVID taught me is that I can buy anything online and be reasonably happy when it gets delivered. So that requires logistics hubs. And today, if you said, Mike, go out and find me 100 acres of industrial, ready to go on a 400 series highway, it'd be tough to find. So I do think with the growth and expansion, I think those logistics hubs are going to keep growing, keep happening, if not increase. So while we're on the topic of you know COVID-19 shifting in everybody's priorities, if you look at rent projections for any asset class, there's a pretty significant immediate dip down and then a pretty significant rise back up. You know, all the bright minds are saying that this should be should be a short-lived depression in rents that will come back quickly. And given that timelines on development can be so long, will this theoretically short dip in rents impact land prices or do the timelines being so long a development kind of make this just wash that away? Nobody's being forced to sell except some very smaller mid-sized developers that really bought too much over finance. I am not seeing any pressure downwards on land. I'm not having any large developers or even mid-sized ones for the most part coming to me and saying, I need to sell, get me out. So I haven't seen anything transact that transacted higher in 2017 than what we're selling for today. You know, maybe I do think we'll see some of the smaller properties distressed sales probably this fall, early next year, but nothing of any significance, nothing that's really going to affect the market. It'll be picked up by our our development community and it'll be taken through the process quickly. But I'm not seeing any downward pressure in land for any of the land type. And no one's coming to us and saying, I need to get out. It's not surprising. I think we're, we're all or we are surprised a little bit that the market and all facets of the real estate community seem to be fairly well capitalized. I think probably more than we potentially thought, even on the retail side. I know there's still early potentially, but based on you know the conversations we're having with retail owners, they're, they're still okay. Like they're, They've still got either government support or enough cash kind of in their piggy banks to keep going. 
I'm going to jump, change course a little bit, Mike. You know, I'm, this is probably more of a Vancouver related question, but I wanted maybe just to compare it to your experiences in the GTA. You know, there was a time where foreign investment seemed to be going heavily into land. And, you know, I remember on panels and just in general conversations, people talking about at the purchase table or at the negotiation table, you just couldn't compete because the foreign capital had so many different motivations to get their money just invested in real estate that they weren't buying necessarily on, you know, pro forma metrics and things like that. And I know for sure that's happened in Vancouver. And we were starting to see it come to the GTA, I think, sort of 2018, 2019. Maybe just kind of talk through your beliefs, you know, your experience with foreign investment, and maybe just how you see it's going to play out, you know, in the next couple of years. Politics in China, Hong Kong, very different now than it was 10 years ago that they started, you know, that Asian influence started buying in Vancouver. We started seeing, we had a couple of large government-related groups and private people came and were starting to buy here. I, I think they just started when it was getting tougher and tougher to get your money out of China. So I think we caught the tail end of it on the bigger end. On the small private end, we've seen you know, multiple waves of different immigrant groups come and buy at different times. In the 80s, when, you know, Hong Kong first was talking about being turned over, we saw a lot of Asian investment in mid-80s. I remember seeing and and selling a lot of land to people from Hong Kong and income-producing properties. This wave, you know, certainly in the last 10 years, I haven't seen a huge influence in the land I've sold for overseas investment. A lot of those that they call overseas investors were already here. They'd been here for years. So they're well-versed with our market. Sure, there was some new enters, but nothing of any consequence that, that really changed our market the way they did in Vancouver. You know, Mike, we started off the interview by talking about some of your larger listings getting pulled due to COVID-19, and they are coming back now, which is a great sign of life. Can you talk about some of the bigger ones you have coming up and not just about the ones you have coming up, they're being relisted, but what you expect to list over the you know, next six to 12 months and the kind of activity that you plan to expect to see on that. Well, like we spoke about earlier, we did stop the launch on some of the larger listings. But we recently launched a Beacon Hall golf course in Aurora, 200 gross acres, but 140 net usable acres. Uh, we feel it's mostly going to be singles, medium density. And this really is a good sign that we feel there's going to be a lot of confidence in the market and that people are pens up on writing a bigger deal. It's going to be well over $200 million. And the fact that this is out in the market today shows that CB, both our downtown national investment group and our group, the land services group, has a lot of confidence that that private and institutional development market is back. And why do I feel it's back? It's because people are launching single-family homes and doing tremendously well. So there's been launches in Markham, Brampton, Durham region, one recently in Richmond Hill. I don't want to go into specifics that, but this is something that you call the developer on the Sunday after the day launched on the Friday night or the Saturday morning, and he's excessively happy. He's so happy he doesn't want to tell you the numbers. So it tells you that there's great depth in that single family home market right now. Can you just maybe talk, are you getting a lot of activity, Mike, on that, on your, on the new listings? It's amazing how popular you become amongst the private development community when you launch a good listing. So everybody's asking me how my kid is, how everything's going, 
why they haven't had lunch with me in so long. So certainly, yes, we're getting a lot of interest. So generally, we say 20% of the people that ask for the information bid. So we're very happy. I don't want to go into exact numbers, but we'll have our choice when it comes time to select a person. So Mike, I got I have one final question for you, and this is closer to Adam and my expertise. Maybe just talk through how your clients are financing some of these acquisitions, what financing levels you're seeing in the land market in general, maybe pre-COVID if you want to keep it to pre-COVID. But if you want, talk about what you're seeing today also. None of the private large developers are concerned about financing. I think some of the smaller and mid-sized guys are somewhat worried. And they do talk about, you know, running around and having different discussions. But I think the large private clients, the clients that are First Nationals and Cameron Stevens, I don't think they're worried. They have relationships with you and they know you're there to back them up on the right acquisition. None of those typical larger private developers are concerned about financing. I think on the smaller side, yes. But on the larger side, they're going to your traditional lenders that they've gone to and have relationships over the last 25 years, and they know you're going to be there for the right acquisition. If anything, I've had a couple of larger lenders say, you know what, let me know when something big is coming out because we, we have to place some money. So I expect to see you guys on Beacon Hall. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> there, I mean, yeah, there's capital everywhere, whether it's the debt side or the equity side. I mean, you mentioned it before. It's a, it's a health crisis, not an economic crisis. I think there's a lot of people with a lot of money picking their pens back up and starting to trying to want to do deals. And maybe it's because we're all deal junkies and so we just can't help ourselves. Yeah, the, um, only thing, I, the only thing I can say is be nice to your land broker. Because we're, put, <laughs> we're putting the gas in your car. So just, just I like that. it. There you go. Well, Mike, thank you very much for coming on. It's a great conversation. We haven't done land in a while, if ever. So it was really nice to, to have a different asset class. Uh, and very pleased to hear that the activities are picking up. It's, I think that's a positive note. And hopefully we're seeing that across the real estate community in, in whatever asset class, whatever part you play. I want to thank First National for powering the podcast. I want to thank Inform, of course, for introducing us to Mike. And stay tuned. Adam and I are going to do our after show once we let Mike go. But thanks again, Mike. Thank you. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate After Show. At this point, it is just uh, Aaron and me sharing our thoughts on land. At that whole interview was, you know, one of the topics that we don't, you know, get into that often. I think you mentioned right at the end there that we might never have covered land. Not true. Jeremiah Seamus, we did have in our first year of podcasting, but that was, of course, 2016 and now we're 2020. So we have been negligent. That was episode, what, like episode seven or eight? And he only agreed to do it because you guys, you guys were buddies, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. But no, that was, uh, yeah, Mike's got a, a long career in land and I can't imagine the boom years he would have had leading up to, to COVID-19. He mentioned that it was great first quarter leading into COVID, but I also got to think that the previous 10 quarters were probably also quite solid in terms of activity because development's been on fire in Ontario for so long. Yeah, he didn't say this, and maybe I shouldn't even indicate it, but like, he was probably a bit sad that we didn't get more of the foreign investment wave that they saw in Vancouver. Like <laughs> yeah. some, of the, 
some of the numbers I can remember we were doing some land financing or maybe it was even like takeout financing where foreign investment, particularly Chinese investment, where the land value might have been, you know, 350 bucks per square foot buildable. And they were coming in paying 600. Like it was just astronomical and buying things that other developers thought, you know, I don't think I could ever get the entitlement done or I don't think I'll ever get any density near there. And then these Chinese investments were coming in and they were just blowing numbers out of the water. And I'm sure making many land brokers very, very happy at the time. Yeah, most of the jaw-dropping deals I heard about did originate out west. You know, the difference being, we were in, we were been talking about this before we started recording a little bit. Is you know, pro forma numbers, you can put virtually anything you want. I mean, you know, theoretically, it should be based on a sound investment thesis and well researched. But people do sharpen their pro formas, meaning they've adjusted their original predictions, and it could be for something as simple as trying to make a deal work. But a lot of that foreign capital is not operating under the same constraints that you would have on, you know, the Excel spreadsheet you're filling out here. It's a matter of deployment. And so you did see those crazy deals, and yeah, they were largely focused out west. And Mike said it properly, like it was it, government intervention, right, where there's a lot of foreign investment taxes. And then China as well made it a lot harder for investors to get their money out of the country. So it just immediately kind of, I think, slowed right down. And I haven't heard or seen very much of it since. You know, one of the things we didn't really get to with Mike, which I thought might have been interesting, is just that horizon on the pro formas. Because I think some of the large institutions that have a bit of a a land bank, right? Like they're looking to keep the pipeline moving. If they think they can do three or four developments a year, you got to have a healthy pipeline of land. And if you're trying to build out for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you can pay something a little bit more today if you think you're not going to develop the land for 20 years. And I'm just curious if you get sort of discrepancies amongst guys that need the land because they need to build on it tomorrow versus guys that say, well, I mean, who knows what what I'm going to be building on this thing in 20 years. So yeah, sure, I'll pay that dollar figure, whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, if everybody's using the same basic you know, IRR framework, but you could have one guy who's buying land that's months away from being shovel ready. He's doing max land financing, and that, that can be expensive, and then building and selling versus, yeah, it could be a 20, 30-year hold with no financing on it, and of course, a ton of appreciation. So it's the same basic math, but your inputs are, are radically different and your priorities would be radically different as well. I mean, like obviously, people looking for shovel-ready stuff are looking closer to the core for the most part of any CBD. And the guys thinking 40 years out are going to buy on the outer ring, pick up farms that one day will be a, a mall and uh, seven apartment buildings. But it's a very, very different way of looking at real estate. <laughs> you could feel the angst when he was talking about his dad buying a cottage instead of a plot of land and it was based on the same price i'm sure the appreciate or the the return on that cottage isn't quite as good as you know a couple hundred thousand acres in Vaughn. yeah <laughs> pretty crazy right yeah those are the jaw-dropping stories you will hear in ontario it's usually yeah my grandfather bought this farmland for x and now it's been approved for this and, and worth you know a hundred million dollars that's the jaw-dropping stuff that you hear in this part of the country Anyway, it's funny. He's talking, obviously, he's in you know, a portion of a career where I'm sure he's not too worried about having, you know, a year of a reserve available. But when he said that, my first thought was generally the best salespeople don't have the personality types to sock it away for a rainy day. You know, it's, uh, they, I, they I tend was, to run a little fast and loose. I was going to make fun of you. I was going to say, you should have seen Adam's face when he put out that year. I can see Adam being like, is one month enough? Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, fortunately for you and, and, you know, financing in general, we've been so busy. It's not like you really needed to tap into your savings. But I think a lot of people in our industry are feeling that way. I mean, remember talking to, shoot, I forget his name now, the apartment broker back in sort of like early April, Michael, Michael Bacillau. Yeah. And now he was kind of like, oh, no. And I remember 
at one point during the pre-discussion, he showed up on his phone that, that we had just hit a million positive coronavirus tests worldwide. And he was just shocked that there's a million people with this thing. And I don't know, we're sitting at like 15 million with, you know, no end in sight, you know, four months later. But I bet you if Betzalel was here, he'd say, yeah, but volumes are picking up. He's getting more activity. He's getting more traction on deals. And he's probably back to doing deals just like he was pre-COVID. Well, I can tell you as an update to that story, verified, yes, that is true. Because we had him on at the absolute depths of uncertainty and shutdowns and you know bleak future and so of course he was you know probably not you know as perky as he would be now and yeah he did show the, the, the rollover of a million cases of covid because at that point there was an inverse relationship to covid cases and all of our you know all of our jobs but i can confirm having spoken since indirectly that that apartment team has picked up quite a biz- business since then, and things are probably looking a lot better. We should have them on for uh, you know a cheer everybody up episode. If uh, things have picked well, up, we, quite gotta, a bit. we have to figure out how to play the sound bites of him being so solemn and downtrodden for just to get him to refresh his memory. And yeah, I mean, we can speak to it too. I mean, in our business, I'm seeing a lot of more purchase transactions that are finally coming through. Stuff that I think was not big pre-COVID stuff that's kind of now transacted and, uh, you know, the waiver period is coming up and they're coming to us looking for, you know, commitments and things like it's happening. So yeah, and of, as far as land goes, I'm, I'm seeing land deals starting to show up again. I, I was definitely, I mean, obviously I'm not involved in land the way, way Mike would be given that's his, you know, every waking moment asset class, but I was not talking to anybody about land through March, April, May and then I would say June again they started popping up land deals and not for the biggest development families in the country just you know your kind of just mid-sized development groups that were definitely sidelined they're showing up land deals again looking at stuff moving forward with stuff more importantly it's, you know we're all moving past the conversation stage and it's a sign that uh, people want to keep building you know in Ontario but I do understand that it is you know that it does extend to the rest of the country as well so is that our thoughts on land I think that I think that I is think so I don't, I don't yeah. really I got enough. I mean, clearly, Mike said it all. We don't really need to add oh, yeah. to it. The only uh, thing I'd say is we need to not let so much time go on between now and our next land episode. For, yeah, let's get Seamus back on as fast as we can, right? Yeah, yeah, make that commitment. Yeah, but uh, anyways, I hope everybody enjoyed the after show and you know our thoughts on land. Obviously, not as well developed as Mike's, but you know we do see it regularly. And looking forward to the next episode. Just wait. The next time we have an apartment topic, well, we'll just blow your mind with our after show insight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.